Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Philippians chapter 1. We are in the third week of the series, and we'll start with the first verse. <laughs> Three weeks in, we're actually going to be in Philippians. I hope you're uh, happy for that. Uh, if you don't have one of those scripture journals, I want to encourage you uh, to grab one of those and, and to begin to take notes. We're going to be slowly walking through this book. It's going to take us quite a while. Um, one of the values we have as a church is to teach through Scripture. We want that to be the loudest thing that uh, echoes through here while you're here with us. And so we're just going to slowly walk through the book of Philippians. And today we will begin uh, in chapter 1, verse 1. But to set us up, uh, I'm going to uh, reflect for just a moment here. When I became a Christian as a senior in high school, I never would have imagined uh, the change that was going to take place when it came to my friendships. See, I grew up in South Florida. I had a group of guys that, uh, and, and girls that I was very close to, a group of friends, in middle school and high school. And uh, none of us were believers or followers of Jesus uh, through middle school and high school. And we, we made a lot of bad choices together, but we also created a lot of good memories. And uh, those memories are things I still carry with me today in, in some of these friendships. I check in on these guys from time to time. It's one of the only, may be the only reason I'm grateful for social media, uh, is to check in on some of them, see how they're doing, where they're at in their lives. But uh, after I became a Christian, uh, as a senior in high school, uh, there was a distance that began to be created. Nothing intentional. Like we didn't do it on purpose. But there began to be some changes in the direction of our lives. Uh, mainly, four months after becoming a Christian, I left for Bible college, and they couldn't understand what was going on in my life. In fact, I didn't quite understand what was going on in my life. And this distance began to be created between us because our values were different. The direction our lives were headed were, were just different than they were before. And it wasn't something that we wanted. It wasn't necessarily a distance that we would have hoped for, but it happened. I had a mentor say to me, and gave me some really good advice. It's advice that I've since uh, tried to echo to my children, and as they get a little bit older, it's advice that I'm going to be drilling into my children. Uh, but a mentor, as I was struggling through this, trying to figure out who some of my new friends would be and how I was going to develop these friendships because of the differences that were taking place in my life, uh, he pulled me aside and he said, Rob, uh, this is the first thing he said, he said, Rob, you can't live the right kind of life with the wrong kind of friends. And that had a profound impact on me. What he was saying was, you, Rob, you've got to make sure that what do you believe the purpose of life is? Like, What is the end goal for your life? And when you really believe that, you need to then be very selective about who you invite to be your closest friends because they will have an impact on whether or not you achieve that goal, that purpose in life. You cannot live the right kind of life with the wrong kind of friends. He also said to me, Another similar phrase that struck with me, and he said this. He said, look, if you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Zen, this is advice I want my kids to understand. It's, it's, not, it's not advice that says only befriend everyone who's just like you, but it is wisdom to say, be selective in who you allow to have access to your heart. Who you welcome in very close to you will impact how your life ends up. Friendships have a tremendous amount of potential to do either good or harm, depending on who it is that we befriend and who it is that we allow to get closest to us. Friendship is an incredible gift from God. 
that has incredible potential to influence our lives in a pretty remarkable way. I've learned that over the years. The group of friends that I uh, met in college have become like family to me. In fact, my wife and I are going to get uh, do a little getaway this coming week uh, with a group of friends that we've been friends with since college. These are people that have uh, walked me through some of the darkest seasons in life, and they have enjoyed some of the greatest memories in life. They've made a tremendous impact on my life, and I am eternally grateful to God for giving me the gift of their friendship. See, this idea of friendship is the same thing that Paul experienced with the Christians in Philippi. The potential for this deep, real friendship to change things is something he introduced uh, the Christians in Philippi too during his time there. And the friendship that's formed between these Christians is pretty incredible. If you remember, the last couple of weeks we've covered uh, a little bit about the city of Philippi. This Roman culture filled with retired Roman soldiers. What's fascinating about this culture is it was extremely self-centered, extremely self-focused, uh, the Roman culture was. As a matter of fact, it's fascinating, if you've studied a little bit of history, to be able to see that a lot of the language, a lot of the uh, propaganda, if you will, around the Roman culture was all about the empire as a whole, and yet all of the customs and all the practices of Rome were extremely selfish. Not about everybody as a whole, but about the individual. As a matter of fact, the Roman culture is where we get the phrase, climb the social ladder. That's where that originated. You see, depending on the family that you were born into, the powerful network you were able to create, the money you were able to make, uh, the political influence you were able to get, all determined what rung of the ladder you were on and how high up you got in political power and influence. And depending on what rung your life landed on, on this social ladder, really depended... Uh, who you were allowed to be associated with, who your friendships were allowed to be, because if you associated with the people on the wrong rung of the ladder, then you weren't going to climb that ladder any further. And so it came very much about the, the selfishness of the individual. And it, you might have used language to uh, promote the whole, the whole empire or everybody else around you, but really you were really just focused on getting one more rung up on that ladder of influence and money and power. And for the life of me, I spent all week trying to figure out, is there any other culture like this in the world? And I just can't figure one out. Maybe, maybe you can. So I think it's safe to say that these Romans in the city of Philippi, they were focused, man. They were completely focused on just getting more influence, getting more well-known, focusing on themselves and their immediate family. And if they had to get past somebody in order to do it, that was what they were going to do. Until Paul and his little group of missionaries show up. And they introduce him to Jesus, and everything begins to change. See, we learned in Acts 16 that because of the message of Jesus, we watched a slave girl get delivered from a demon. You watch a successful businesswoman get baptized into Christ and, and start a church in her home. We watched a jailer who was on the brink of taking his own life because of uh, despair. We watched him and his entire household get baptized into Christ, and everything for them begin to change. And now you watch this church is growing, and this friendship is getting deeper between the Apostle Paul and these Christians, these new baby Christians, if you will, that are, are now receiving this message a mere 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. Everything is beginning to look different, feel different, and change for them. And so they begin to get very generous because this relationship with Paul, Paul would have moved on to another city, so they send gifts. And this guy Epaphroditus comes back to Paul and says, hey, 
uh, Paul, th- these Christians love you. So then Paul sits down and writes a letter and says, hey, tell them I love them too. And remind them of how much they mean to me. Paul's letter takes on a different tone than his other letters in your New Testament. If you study the Bible, a lot of his letters take on a different tone. You've got letters where he's correcting theological misunderstandings. You've got letters like 1 Corinthians where he's going to correct the church on how they're living out what they're supposed to believe. You've got other letters like Galatians that doesn't open up very gently. He says, I'm astonished at how quickly you've abandoned the faith. And then you've got this little letter that sneaks in here. In the Greco-Roman letter writing, this is actually called a friendship letter. It just takes on a different tone. This is not Paul trying to correct something. This is just Paul wanting to encourage his friends. And I think as we dive in, that's exactly what it's going to do to us. It's going to encourage us as we begin and continue to walk with Jesus. Now, we're going to slowly go through just the first five verses today. And uh, we're going to practice patience. All right. Let's begin Roman or Philippians. We're in Romans now, right? Philippians chapter one, verse one. Uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Let's pause. <laughs> We're not going to get far fast, okay? Uh, but it's important, so I want you to take notes. It, it's pretty common for us when we sign letters. Uh, uh, young people, a letter is something you get paper out, you actually write it, and you <laughs> fold it. I was actually joking with someone this past week. I don't even think some people know where to put the stamp on a letter. Like, but but you, you would sign it at the end of a letter. Most of us don't experience that. We experience, honestly, I think a little bit more like what was common in, in this world where they would immediately sign their name. We experience that when we open our inbox and we can see immediately who wrote us the email. It's a little bit more like it was for them. Immediately they would have known who's writing this letter because it's coming from Paul and Timothy. This is especially important for the Christians in Philippi. Paul tells us elsewhere, and we'll look at that here in just a moment, that these Christians were experiencing hardship. It was difficult. You can imagine when you give up an entire social system that you were raised in and actually fought to defend, that now your life looks different than everything that they're telling you it should look different. You begin to feel a little bit of pressure on your life. And so for them to receive a letter and immediately know it's coming from Paul, our mentor, our pastor, Man, it all, like just immediately it perks them up. They just want to hear it. This letter would have been read in front of the entire church. And Paul mentions that it's coming from him and Timothy. Now, he, he does that for a variety of reasons. There's seven other letters. Paul will mention Timothy's name. Uh, and, and the reason why is because there's, a good, there's good odds that Timothy may have been the secretary for Paul. He may have actually done some of the writing of some of the letters. But I think more important than that is that the Christians in Philippi would have known Timothy. They would have known him. They would have been familiar with his name, and it would have been significant that Paul and Timothy were sending this message to him. And he says right off the bat, Paul and Timothy, we are servants of Christ Jesus. Circle that word servant in your Bible. Highlight it, circle it, underline it. It's going to come back all throughout this series, all throughout this letter of Philippians. It's an important word. See, when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, they, they had this fight going on. Oh, I like Apollos, I like Peter, I like it when Paul preaches, and oh, we prefer this, and we prefer this, and we like this, and we like that. And it, at one point in the letter, Paul says, wait a second, hold on. What is Apollos? What, what is Peter? What is Paul? And it's fascinating to me because he doesn't say who. He actually uses a, a certain pronoun in the Greek that communicates what, not who. So he's not saying who is Apollos, he's saying what is Apollos, what is Paul? What are we but servants? 
See, we're preoccupied with who, who's coming, who is this person, like who, who is it that I know, but Paul was more concerned with what? He says, what are we? We're servants. Your translation might say slaves. We're servants or slaves to Christ Jesus. What Paul's telling us right off the bat, what he's reminding these Christians is this, is that Christ-centered ministry, now, I don't know what your experience has been when, you, when I say the word ministry. I don't know if that's a trigger word for you for good memories or bad. But biblically, a Christ-centered ministry is a servant ministry. The servant of God, whoever it is, is to be a servant of God's people. Therefore, pastoral ministry is service. It is to serve people on behalf of God. A pastor cannot serve his people from a boardroom pastor cannot serve his people from a green room. Maybe you've been reading the news lately. Uh, I don't know if you've read the news this week. It's kind of heartbreaking to watch all of these well-known Christian leaders uh, walking away and denouncing the faith. Multiple, in the last month, there's been multiple well-known Christian leaders saying, I'm no longer a Christian. And it's heartbreaking. I read that and I think, man, what is going on? And there's a lot of reasons for it. And this is not the place for us to to go into all the details. But I do think one of the reasons is we've created a culture where a pressure is put on some of these people to perform and maintain impact and platform. And the pressure becomes so crushing because they lost sight of serving. It is not. We're not to be known in ministry. None of us. We are all ministers of the gospel if we are in Christ. And the goal of ministry is not that we would ever be known, but that we would strive to make him known. The goal of ministry is not that we would be served, but that we would give our lives to serving other people. And for far too many people, even in the church, we've created a social ladder of sorts. Your status among God's people is determined by the rung of the ladder you land on. We would do well, I think, to remember the words of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church when he wrote these words in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And he said, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life would win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. Live a quiet life. Serve other people. You might even venture, and this may be slightly extreme, and I ask you to forgive me if it comes off that way, but you may venture to say your greatest impact, your greatest impact should be forgotten. You should die forgotten as long as Jesus is remembered, as long as he's made famous. Think about how that, just that one word would have settled in on the Philippian church who as soon as Paul leaves are reminded about the social ladder, as soon as Paul leaves are reminded about their rights and privileges as Roman citizens and soldiers. And Paul says, remember that you are a servant. I heard one preacher, one leader say it this way, and I think this is really remarkable way to summarize what this word servant or slave to Christ really means. He said this, we'd be good to remind our congregations consistently That as their pastors, and you might say as a minister in general, I will always be your servant, but you will never be my master. Think about about the impact that that would have on all of our relationships. I mean, I just think about my marriage. 
If my goal in my marriage with my wife is, Sarah, I will always be your servant, but you will never be my master. That means I can serve you without expecting something in return. I can serve you without these unrealistic expectations. I can serve you without fear of losing you. I can, I can just serve you because I'm actually serving you in response to a different master. My friendships, your relationship with your boss, your family members, your children, your children, you can just say, hey, I just want to remind you, my way of living my life is this. I will always, to all of you and to everyone else in my life, I will always be your servant. But you will never be my master. There is only one. And Paul says we are slaves, servants to one master, Christ Jesus. He continues. The second part of verse 1, he says, To all, now this letter, this is who it's to, this, it's from, and now it's to, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. I want to pause here for a minute, too, because there's some words that get confusing. The first one is saints in, in a religious, uh, multiple re- religious culture like we have around us right now with all kinds of things. It can get confusing as to what is a saint. I just want to remind you, saints in the Bible, they're not a special group of religious Christians that have achieved some sort of a status. Saint is actually the word used to describe every Christian, like everybody. Anybody who is a Christian in the Bible, will, the, the word saint would be used to describe you. Paul does so in the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians and so on. He constantly uses the word saint to describe those who are Christians. And the word means you are a holy one. Hagios is the word. It means set aside, set aside, holy. How are you set aside? You're set aside by Jesus. What are you set aside for? You're set aside for Jesus. You are his holy people. How did they become their holy ones? He indicates it right here. It's because they are in Christ. We are set aside in Christ for Christ. That becomes the entire purpose of life. The key to being a saint is to be in Christ. This is how he says it right here. So you cannot, you cannot be made new apart from being in Christ. And just think about the, it's just so profound how every word in this first verse just has packed with meaning. He says, you are a holy one. You are a saint to the saints that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, later on, Paul would write to the church at Corinth. He would say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, if any man is in Christ, same phrase, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old person is gone. The new person has come. And so if you're not in Christ, you're just the same old stuff. But if you're in Christ, something's different. Something has changed in you. Something has changed in me. We're not the same as we were. And it's because of what Jesus has done. The Bible teaches that when Jesus came, as what Paul would refer to him as the second Adam. You remember in the beginning of your Bible, uh, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve sinned and introduced sin into the world. Well, the second Adam, Jesus, came. He came into the world to do what Adam failed to do, mainly to remain faithful and sinless. He also came to undo all that Adam did in the fall. And that is to remove shame and to remove guilt and to remove the penalty of sin, which is death. And when we become Christians, when you're baptized into Christ, in that moment, all of those rights and privileges are bestowed on you. You are now in Christ. And God sees Jesus now instead of you. He sees the sinlessness of His Son And the righteousness of His Son is imparted onto you. And this connection that's made between you and Jesus now is unlike anything else you can get anywhere else. And so when He says to the saints who are in Christ Jesus, that in Christ Jesus means you have a connection to God unlike anybody who's outside of Christ. A connection you can only have when you are inside of Christ. 
illustrate it this way. How many of you have uh, done much traveling? And when you are uh, on an airplane, when you, the plane lands, what's one of the first things that you do, at least in 2019, what's one of the first things you do as soon as the plane touches down? You said it. You take out your cell phone immediately. You're not even like, oh, we landed. That's so cool. We were just flying through the air. It doesn't even marvel you at all. You're just like, the plane landed. I figured it would. Let me get out my cell phone because without my cell phone, I'm not connected. And immediately what happens is your cell phone will indicate that it's looking for a connection, searching. And we're extremely impatient. The fact that it even says it has to search irritates us. But we're sitting there looking at our phones, and it's searching. Why? What is your phone good for without that connection? Sure, you can tell the time. There's some basic things that you can do with your cell phone. But until that connection's made, you are not connected to the outside world. You cannot check your email. You cannot text message. You cannot make phone calls. You cannot download apps. You can't do all of the rights and the privileges that come with being connected to a network. And in the same way, when Paul says that when you are in Christ, you have this connection that's unlike anything else. Now you are connected to the source of life that will give you life unlike anything else ever could. Outside of that connection, can you live a good life? Absolutely. I've had people say many times, can, do you need to be a Christian to be a good dad or to be a good husband? Depends on how you define that. But just to be very, very simple, say, no, you don't have to. You can be a great dad. But it'll always be incomplete. It'll always be incomplete because everything you give your children will be temporary. And you're missing out on the most important part of parenting and marriage and relationships. So can you be good? I don't think so completely because you need the connection. Without the connection, you are disconnected from the source of life. This is what it means to be a Christian. So he says, to the saints who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2. I know we're going slow. Uh, we're not going to, we'll go quickly through the next few verses, okay? It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's typical way of kind of opening a letter, and he does it in this order because it is impossible for you to experience, and I just want to reiterate this, it's impossible for you to experience true peace without the grace of God. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. See, this is a clue, this verse is a clue into the tone of the whole letter. Paul says that whenever I think about you guys, whenever you come to my mind, I am filled, my heart is filled with a profound sense of gratitude. As I remember all the times that we shared together, as I remember the generosity that you've displayed to me, I have this profound sense of gratitude and Paul then indicates that he does with that gratitude what no atheist is capable of doing when they experience the sense of gratitude. Is he says, I then thank God. I know who to thank with my gratitude. So he has this profound sense of gratitude. And when he thinks about his friends in Philippi, all he can do is thank God for it. All he can do is turn around and thank God. This is a game changer. This is, this is really profound when you think about the life of a church. How many of us, when we think about being here on a Sunday morning for this gathering or at our discipleship group during the week or at an event that the church might be hosting, when we think about being at that gathering or in that group or at that event are filled with a profound sense of gratitude for the people, not the stage, not the food at the group, and not the fun at the event, but for the people that we're going to get to see because the memories that we form and the profound sense of love that we feel toward these people. Paul doesn't say, I'm so grateful for the impact I had on you. 
I'm so grateful for the fact that you helped me create a platform and you got all of my books sold and now I'm well known and it's all because of you. No, it's so much different. It's so much deeper than that. It's so much deeper than this surface level fluff that we've often turned this into. He says, when I think about you, when you come into my mind, I'm so grateful that God blessed me with your friendship. How many of us have had that experience? When we think about the people that God has blessed us with, we just pause long enough to be grateful and to turn around and thank him for the relationships that he's blessed us with. Look, I've not always experienced that when it came to ministry. In fact, two years ago, I contemplated not being in ministry anymore. I'd lost sight. Ministry became a a job. And coming here was difficult, if I'm being really transparent and honest. I I had a hard time. And then God, through the words of my father-in-law and other mentors in my life, reminded me what it was really all about. And I can say with all sincerity, like from the bottom of my heart, even though this is the cornfields of Indiana and not the beaches of Florida. (laughs) From the bottom of my heart, every time I get in my car to drive to this place, every single time I'm grateful for all of you. I am so profoundly grateful to get to be a part of this gathering, this expression of God's people. It has changed my life. Do you guys understand that my wife was raised in this place? That every day I look at four children that are only here because of the love you displayed to their mother while she was growing up. I love this place. And I am so grateful. And I can resonate with Paul when he says, every time I think about you, I'm just grateful. And he indicates why he's grateful. And we'll bring it to a close here with just the first part here. Verse 5, he says, I'm grateful to you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, I've got a different kind of joy with this friendship I have with you, unlike my previous life. And his previous life was very religious. But he says, with you guys, it's different. It's it's a different kind of joy because we're working together. We have the same vision for our life, the same values. We're going in the same direction. What he's essentially saying is, our friendship's founded on kingdom impact. We are all working together to make Jesus famous. We are all working together to give of ourselves to the point that we just advance the kingdom, even if it's sacrificial. Partnership would have have been multifaceted, this word partnership. It's theologically grounded and practically giving. Theologically, he says, we're united. We partner together for this theological purpose. And he says, practically, we give. And as much as it's uncomfortable to say it, one way to know whether or not you're partnering in the gospel is to look at your checkbook. and Look at the way you and your family do your budgeting and to say, what is it we do to have a kingdom impact as a family? What is it that we are doing to, imp- to partner together to impact God's kingdom? Where is that coming from us? For the Philippian church, their generosity profoundly impacted Paul to the point where he bragged to other churches about it. Look at how Paul would write this, uh, write about this in 2 Corinthians. He says this, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. This is Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In the midst of difficulty and suffering and hardship, they were still generous. Because they understood, we're partnering together in the advancement of the kingdom, and the kingdom is eternal, not temporary. 
And so everything we do has an eternal impact. One way to determine this is to watch the way that you live your life. And so I want to leave you with two questions that have been rocking me really all week. And the first question has caused me to slow down a little bit, which isn't popular in our culture. And if you'll take this question during the next week, and you'll slow down enough to just think about the passage we just read, just five simple verses. Read those five verses again. And come back to these two questions. And just begin to allow the Holy Spirit to work on you. I think he'll do something powerful in your life. As he's done in mine this past week. The first question is this. Who is it? Who is it that I am thankful for? And why is it that I'm thankful for them? I mean, we get going so fast that our relationships are transactional. Yep, we're just married. We're just going through the motions. We're just roommates. We're just... But if we'd pause for a little while and remember and thank God for these relationships, Again, I think it would have a profound impact on our lives. The second question is this. How am I partnering in the work of the gospel? You might add, how am I and who am I partnering with in the advancement of the gospel? And I can tell you this church is pretty incredible. I don't know many churches where on most weeks you can come and there's a missionary on site. Many churches who are willing to host a a conference that was hosted this past weekend were missionaries from around the world were here on our campus this past week learning how to use God's land to advance God's message. I don't know many churches that give almost 20% of everything to global missions and watch people serve. You are a very generous church. And one way to make sure we continue with that to make sure we're asking ourselves the hard questions. What am I thankful for? And how am I partnering to advance the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus? Wrestle with those questions this week. Let's pray.